From Hong Kong, Chicago and the city of Stoke-on-Trent, this is the Classic Lenses Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 92. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by Johnny Sisson and Perry G. Hello Johnny. Good morning all. And hello Perry. Hello, good evening. Yeah, it's, it's getting late in Hong Kong because... Most of the world, or a lot of the world, I should say, uh, the, the clocks have now gone gone back. Um, they went back this weekend for for Johnny. They went back the previous weekend for for myself. But Paul Perry, um, you're now where well, used to start the recording of this podcast around about nine o'clock in the evening. You're you're now starting after ten o'clock. Oof. That's right. That's right. So I have a a nice pot of Sri Lankan Ceylon tea next to me. A little bit of warmth and caffeine to keep me nice and snug on the cold, frigid Hong Kong winters. And and you, of course, have a shot of Malord in there too, right, Perry? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I haven't I haven't decided what to name that ah, hotel okay. yet, but you know, got to give a nod to our sponsors. Right. Exactly. Well, uh, good luck with that, Perry. Um, <laughs> all right. And we have a guest with us uh, this this week, uh, because I'm delighted to say that we're joined by John the Trucker Torpedo Bruning. Um, <laughs> hi, John. Hey, guys. How's it going? It's going well. And uh, just for the benefit of our, our listeners, John is a, is an acclaimed cat and uh, uh, and American football photographer. Um, I say American football photographer because obviously the game they play in America is American football and not football. So I just like to clarify that point. Um, so uh, it's great to have you with us, John. Thank you. It is a total honor to be here, honestly. Um, you guys are so much fun and you've kept me company in the middle of the nights when I've been trying to sleep after a long night of writing. And uh, just many, many times I've just been lying there listening to the podcast, just cracking up with the crazy things you guys say. And I've learned a lot. Yeah, well, if we can, if we can teach things and uh, and if people enjoy what we're saying, then that's great. But most of the time, it does appear to be nonsense that we uh, come out with. And people <laughs> tend to shout at us more often than they uh, agree with us. But there you go, there you go. Um, okay, now um, we're going to head over to uh, to having a chat with with John uh, a little bit later. But I think to start off with, let's catch up with some of the things that we've been up to, and we'll go over to Hong Kong first while while Perry's still awake. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been up to a bunch uh, that we didn't talk about last time, and I will save a, save a lot of that for next time, too. But uh, got a couple new lenses, one of which is... Well, I blamed I blamed the purchase on you, Simon, but that's strictly not, that's not strictly true. Um, and uh, what else? You know, I, I've been out shooting a bunch, uh, both protests and street, and... The few times recently I've gone out shooting with my girlfriend, you know how she uses my Hexar RF? She has decided that the 35 Summicron that I have is the only acceptable lens uh, that she's willing to use. <laughs> and so now I'm trying to figure out, oh, uh, well, what am I going to use when she's she's out there using the lens that I, I use the most? Christmas just, just, I was going to say, just a question. Does I've seen that you've shared these photographs that your girlfriend's taken just just between uh ourselves yeah. and they are absolutely fantastic yeah um is does she share them on is she on social media somewhere where people can see these things or she keep them to herself at the moment because they're fantastic stuff uh they're mostly to herself i do i think she she may have a a, 
a somewhat secret presence, but let me check with her if she's cool with me, like, broadcasting to our millions of listeners before I tell you where to find her. But yes, her stuff is really good. Because, you know, she's, she's like a tiny little Asian woman, right? So she doesn't have that... She's so non-threatening. So she could get shots that I could never get. She can just, like, walk right up to people in their face and just right. kind of, you know, smile innocently and then just take a photo of whatever they're doing. And I'm standing there on the other side of the road going, I wish I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and everything else I'm going to say for uh, next week. So that's that's pretty much it. Unless you guys have good strategies for preventing your significant others from hogging your favorite lenses. Otherwise... <laughs> <laughs> Over well, to Perry, Johnny. Yeah. Perry, given the lens that you just got, I don't understand your problem here. I, I mean... Right, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not like I don't have other lenses to choose from. That is true. But, you know, um, the that's my go-to sort of default lens because it's, it's fast. The throw is perfect for street. And basically, I tried to get her to try a few other lenses... I put the Konica UC Hexanon 35 f2 on her camera, and she was like, uh, it's a little bit too smooth. The the damping on the Simicron is a little bit nicer because it's got a bit of resistance. So then I gave her the Canon 35 f2, and she was like, ah, this doesn't feel anywhere near as robust. It doesn't feel as nice to use. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so so are you not going to tell us about this Wonder Lens? Have we got to wait till next week to hear about it? your new new acquisition or, or should we cover it this week well i got two um i i repurchased the old canon 35 1.8 uh which i used to have and i really really like the way that lens rendered um but the one that i used to have it, it didn't focus quite accurately on my rangefinders, so i sold it to a sony user at a discount uh and then i just picked up another one for fairly cheap um relatively and it it it's perfect so that was nice and then soon afterwards i just i saw a really nice deal on a canon oh this is the this is the sweet thing i just picked up uh, on a canon 35 f 1.5 ltm um which i was gonna wait for dan tamarkin's auction in chicago uh but i, I a i got impatient and b this one is probably significantly cheaper than i would be able to get it from tamarkin and I came with the original hood and case and everything. And I mean, I wanted this lens for a long time because it's uh, the fastest LTM 35 millimeter lens. And the other fast 35 millimeters, the ones faster than like 1.8 that'll fit on M mount, they're like the Leica Sumalux uh, pre-aspherical, which is, I don't really like that lens. Then there's the aspherical ones, which are huge. Uh, there's the Voigtlander Nocton, which I have a love-hate relationship with, and I've bought and sold like millions of times. Um, and then the Zeiss Distagon, which I do have, it, but it's a little bit too big. So this this seems to tick all the boxes, and initial tests are very, very promising. I just put a... Because we started recording a little bit late today, I just put a uh, roll, half roll of Sinistil through that lens before I came back. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'll talk more about it next week. It's cool. I was, was yeah. going to say that, but just to get this get this straight, you earlier on in the week you bought a, a thirty five one point eight Canon LTM mm-hmm. lens, mm-hmm. and then you went out and bought a Canon thirty five one point five lens, and that's mm-hmm. and that's just quite normal, is it? Is that, is, <laughs> you see what I'm getting at there? You know, 
I, I fail to see the problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, so the 1.8, it it renders quite differently from the F2. Um, and, you know, I've been looking for lenses that are going to give me a bit more character in this cinematic look quest. And uh, that definitely hits the spot. And then the 1.5, I mean, I want to try it. It's faster. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds reasonable to me, Perry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got them for prices that, you know, if I'm going to sell them, I'm going to make a profit. So it's all good. Plus, the 1.8 is much smaller. I was going to say, John, is, it, is this something you, you can relate to? Because you, you've, you've owned quite a few lenses there. Um, are you, is, there is there a bit of Perry in you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Except I think we're, we're operating at different levels because the, uh, like the 35.15. Yeah, if, if if I were to purchase that, the family would kill me because at the moment we're dealing with private university tuition and uh, that's uh, pretty much sucking down all of my discretionary income. So like last year, um, to, to keep my gas habit fed, I just started buying Kiron um, Zooms. You know, those were like 10, 15, 20 bucks a piece. So, yeah. But uh, I have a thing for Anginia lenses. Um, oh. Yeah, and those are pretty expensive. But back in the day, I was I was purchasing a couple of those. But yeah, then my daughter decided to become a biology major, and yeah, that that sucks a lot of my income down. It, 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 it's interesting there how you were you were you were buying lenses just to just to even though they were cheap and they, they weren't particularly desirable in any shape or form, but you know, it just, it, you just felt better for it that oh, I've got a new one. Lens, I've got a new lens. I can try it out at least. And, uh, and then move on to the next. Oh yeah, totally. And, and honestly, I was completely surprised about how good these zooms really are. You know, just reading online about, uh, you know, classic lenses. Uh, when I first got into this, this, um, calling it's not really i guess it's a passion or a hobby it's i don't know it's sort of a way of life i think uh and pretty much everything i saw online was you know don't even don't even bother with the old zooms but there are, some of them are actually pretty good it's i mean it, i mean we're we're absolutely guilty on this show of of helping propagate that that point of view about being anti zoom uh, as far as old zooms are concerned there there is there is yeah we get asked to quite uh ask questions occasionally about you know what's a what's a good zoom and we might reluctantly um talk about a few of the of the better known lenses which are uh, viewed to be um at the, at the top of that of the zoom pile like the uh minolta md 35 uh, 70 3.5 constant for instance that, that just seems to be like a standard answer uh, that that comes out, but it is a bit of an, an anomaly, really, because many of the lenses that we we cherish and love and that admire, uh, we do so because of their inherent problems. You know what we call character is 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 usually an aberration of some some description, and by the very nature, um, older zoom lenses are flawed lenses compared to prime lenses of of of, of the day because it's it's very difficult to make a a zoom lens correct at every single uh, focal length and, and so on and they also tend to be slower and I think that's actually probably the bigger reason why we don't get too excited over zoom lenses but yeah we do we do see photos 
posted with zoom lenses and frankly you would not know specifically that it was a zoom lens you, you don't look at these photographs and thinking oh that's no good because it's obviously been taken with a zoom lens it's it's just a nonsense and it's a snobbery really but it's also about really where people's interest lies and i think that people like the faster primes they just in some way they're they're, they're nicer to hold but the usability of a, of a zoom lens and and in the for the main part the the image quality that people get out of them, whether it be on, on digital or on film, is is perfectly adequate. And if you've got the right photographer behind that lens, then you're going to get really good photos. I, I agree. I, I think um, for what they are, they're, they're pretty good. Um, I took an Access 35 to 70 f25 to the old umatilla chemical weapons depot out in eastern oregon uh, earlier this year and photographed a, a training exercise at sunrise and the the photos i got were were astonishing i mean they were weird uh some of them were very very soft um i shot into the sun and silhouetted the soldiers um and then I took that lens and photographed a, uh, a bar band in Vancouver, Washington. And you know, it, it's not, it's not super sharp. It's got tons of character. Uh, the, the bokeh is a little weird, but I got this lens for free. The local shop owner handed it to me. He's like, I can't sell this. Nobody wants something called access. And, uh, uh, I figured, you know what, if I'm out in the, in the middle of the Eastern Oregon desert and I bang this thing or one of the soldiers not, runs into me or I fall off a bunker. Um, I am not out any money other than maybe the body, but, uh, you know, taking expensive lenses out and doing, um, uh, you know, like a photojournalist shoot is, um, problematical for me. I, you know, I, I try to protect the, the pro level glass that I've got. So taking that lens out was an interesting experience. And after that, I started taking all sorts of different, um, classic lenses out to those, uh, training exercises and the zooms, you know, they function in that role, you know, broad daylight, just fine. And at one point I was taking night photos on a, uh, on a tripod with a Kiron 28 to 210 walk around that I had completely rebuilt. And I was surprised at what it was it was getting. I was really amazed. Well, back in the day, those those super zooms, as they were as they were called back then, those you know uh, a wide wide angle all the way going through to a, a decent telephoto length. I, c I can remember those actually coming out because that was when I was I was initially getting interested in photography in the mid to late eighties, and that's roughly around about the time when those lenses were coming out. I think. Um, who was the first one now? Uh, I think Takina. I think I think they were the first people to bring one out. But they were certainly, you know, it was the the, the third third party brands were were pushing these these super zooms, and a lot of people even back then were were looking down on them and talking about you know the resolution of them isn't as high. And you know and this is obviously in the days of film, so even even then there was a little bit of a stigma attached to them. Um, but I mean, I used to use zoom lenses back in the day, and I used to be very, very happy with the the results I used to get with them. So, uh, but yeah, it's a it's a good it's a it's a good point there. If you if you are going to go out and do photography in it, and you have you're putting your equipment at risk, um, it tends to be the lens that's the most at risk, and therefore, if it's if it's only worth worth pennies, then uh, you can you can be a lot happier with the kind of abuse that you you may be about to give it. Truly, truly, you know, with that with that. Kiron Super Zoom. Uh, when I first got it, 
I, I think I paid under 50 bucks for it. And at the time, Ed and I were really trying to work on using off-camera lighting. So anybody who came to the house, if they were going to sit down, play cards or something with the kids, I had a softbox set up. I had <laughs> I had lights all around the table, and I would just sit there and I'd uh, practice and, and shoot photos of them. And I actually shot indoors with that Kiron at 210. And I could not believe how good the portraits came out. I, I was astonished. Um, that lens is is surprisingly sharp for the focal range that it has. So uh, that was a total keeper. I mean, you know, it, th they're never going to compare to the primes, of course. But there are times where uh, I've found, you know, you're running around, uh, running and gunning uh, some some event. And having a prime, uh, it becomes a liability because you cannot move fast enough to capture the action, action properly. So having the zoom makes sense. Yeah, what, what so, you just what you just said there about the, the being particularly good at two hundred mil though that's that can actually be one of the the properties of of many zoom lenses because one uh, most zoom lenses appear to get used at one end or the other. Uh, <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. so uh, yeah, so you've got a twenty-eight millimeter and a two hundred millimeter lens. That's uh, nothing in between. And uh, the the other thing is, yeah, they they can't. Well, they're usually optimized at one end or the other. And I would probably imagine they're probably generally more optimized to be sharper at the at the telephoto end than the than the wide end. So it's, I get the feeling it's probably easier to make it sharper at that end than it would be to make it sharper at the wide end. Um, Plus, you're going to be looking more at the details in the photograph when, th when something's been taken with the telephoto lens. I, I'm guessing, anyway. I think that's just uh, yeah, uh, human that's nature. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just think I, I just took that away from uh, Perry there. Um, although I, I think that might have been sort of closing with what he was saying because he seemed to be a little mm -hmm. bit uh, circumspect, circumspect about talking about what he's done this week because he's got so much to say. So. Um, so should we should we carry on with your your week next week, Perry? Yeah, yeah, I was. Uh, that was my attempt to bat it over to Johnny, asking for advice on how to get my girlfriend to let me use my Simicron. <laughs> uh, I don't know anything about women. <laughs> well, actually, well, that that that's something um, because Johnny, uh, you're quite famous at the moment, aren't you? You're you're all over the internet with a with a video. Oh, yeah, there's, there's a tape. There's a Johnny tape out there. What? I don't still don't understand what this has to do with women, but okay, we can go there. Because <laughs> they're gonna see it and then become. Oh, okay. Swooning. <laughs> women have been swooning all over the internet. I think you're the only one that's been swooning, uh, Simon. Actually, I don't know. Uh, I was. I was yeah, impressed. We, we had. We had. Um... <laughs> <laughs> this could go south so fast. Oh yeah, oh yeah, 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 definitely. Um, no, we had yeah at, at uh, Central Camera last. Oh, was it last Tuesday? I think um, one of our customers who uh, he is a um, news, you know, cameraman guy for the local ABC affiliate in Chicago. Um, and he comes into the shop quite a bit, and I had a I had a chat with him because he was looking at well, so he 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 shoots video, you know, um, for the for the news station. But he he they want him to do more still photography, so he came in and we had a chat about mirrorless stuff, and you know, really nice guy. I've talked to him before, um, but he sort of he he kind of showed up out of the blue 
uh, or called up out of the blue um, about a week later or so and said, hey, um, can I come in and do a little, you know, do a little story on you guys? And, you know, the owner's like, yeah, sure, whatever. So, I mean, he comes in and he just started shooting and did some interviews with um, myself and other staff folks. And, you know, it's one of those things we, people come in a lot to the shop and do things like this. Um, so every once in a while, there's a little, you know, a little story on us because we're one of the older businesses in Chicago. Um, certainly down older, older businesses downtown. Um, and you know, it's a quirky place. So every once in a while we get a story done on us, but so he, you know, he does all these interviews and we're talking and you never know when, if or when they're actually going to make it onto the actual news. Um, so we figured out oh, it'll, you know, it'll show up in sometime in the future. And and then people started coming in and say, Oh, I saw you guys on the on the TV yesterday. <laughs> We're like, What? <laughs> so uh we we went I went searching around and I, you know, found the video in fairly short order. So yeah, it was it was neat. Uh, everyone you know, like I said, every once in a while somebody will come into the shop. Uh we had uh, a news crew in over the summer that did a little mini feature also. Um we have a lot of students that come in from the various universities and they'll do you know stories for the student paper or or whatever um but yeah this was this was uh was pretty neat i mean it was uh i guess I, i'm still not sure what time of day it actually aired but a lot of people seem to have seen it so yeah it was it was a lot of fun and and he he was he was a nice guy and and talked to many different people at the shop so uh yeah it seems like uh people really enjoyed it so that I mean, it's it's quite it's only about three minutes or so, isn't it? But how, yeah, how, how long did it? How long were they actually filming on the day? Uh, he was in for about I don't know an hour or so, hour and a half, um, and did, did he, he you know he came in when it was early, which was good because it gets busy there uh, as we get into the afternoon. It gets very busy, so he came in early and. It was quiet, and we had a chance to chat, you know, talk to a few different people, and then he kind of stuck around and and got some shots of, uh, you know, just the action there at the shop, people coming in, you know, us talking with people, and uh, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I guess he was there, you know, an hour, hour and a half. I mean, that. that so sounds, when you were, oh, I was just going to say that sounds that sounds pretty slick to me. Um, relatively short period of time he was actually there for, really. But, yeah, looking at the output. Yeah, we, yeah. Well, I mean, he, you know, he's, he's just kind of a one man, a one man team. I mean, he had one of those uh, Canon, high end Canon uh, digital video cameras, um, and actually, I actually set him up with a uh, an LED light on a light stand, just so he had some additional light, um, which was super easy. And then, yeah, he just kind of kind of walked around and did his thing. So it worked out worked out pretty good. It didn't certainly didn't interrupt our day, um, and. Uh, the you know the boss is generally pretty happy to do that and tell the story of 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 his family's you know uh, how the how the how they started the shop and his involvement in the shop and so yeah it was it was good he had a so good he say, good rapport with everyone so when you say he had a high end Canon you're talking about the C the C series right right mm -hmm. exactly yeah not, yeah. Yeah, not that... a DS not a DSLR like a proper digital video camera yeah because after we had bill pavetta on um and we spent quite a long time talking about canon ef mount cameras yeah there were a couple of people who 
who in feedback to that episode said things like, why didn't you guys talk about Sony? And I was like, no, no, no. If, if, if you're doing no, proper like video, real cameras. Yeah, like using, real video cameras. 5D, right. right. <laughs> so, yeah. so when you were talking about, when you were talking to this guy about mirrorless, did you sell him a Sony? Uh, well, we don't we don't carry Sony at the shop, so I wouldn't have a Sony to sell him. Uh, and he he wasn't really interested in the Sony anyway, so that worked out fine. But I mean, I you know I I talk to people about everything. If people ask about mirrorless, it's not like I pretend like Sony doesn't exist because we don't sell it. I mean, I talk about what's good and what's not good about all of it, and then they can kind of decide what they want. I mean, I don't need to. I don't need to sell somebody on something they don't want, you know. Um, so no, we he he was very interested in the um, in the Fujis because he liked the controls on them. I mean, as a kind of a, a video guy, um, he 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 liked the sort of interface on them. So so we chatted about him a bit. He didn't get anything, but we chatted about him and had a good talk. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. Okay, and apart from being on the telly, uh, what what else has been happening? <laughs> that, that, that that's about it. It was a it was a fairly quiet week. It was just a a busy a busy week at the Wait. shop. So, Be, before we properly introduce our guest, then Johnny, is it snowing in Chicago? Oh yeah, it <clears throat> it had snowed. Yeah, so it was. Uh, we had the. Um, I guess it's a holiday. I don't know what. I don't, I don't know what you call Halloween. Um, it's a holiday for kids, whatever. Um, <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> so <clears throat> we had, uh, I think we had like three inches of snow on Halloween night, which is great because, you know, screw the kids. <laughs> 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 um, I, like I remember being a kid, it was always freaking snowing and raining or whatever. So they, they these kids are so freaking soft. They need a little snow on Halloween. <laughs> Uh, they could have come to Hong Kong to trick or treat, and they would have got about three hundred tear gas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I wouldn't be all for tear gassing them. That's fine too. I mean, oh my god, uh, that sounds like a reality series. You know, yeah, and there was only trick or treating. Yeah, well, there was only and there was only one shooting apparently. Only one, only one trick or treater got shot in Halloween this year. So it was kind of a quiet. I I would credit the snow for that because um, usually the uh, number of shootings go down as we have weather events. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, it was it was Halloween, and there was all that goofiness going on, um, and yeah, and, and it was snowing like hell. <laughs> it was actually pretty wild because when you get snow relatively this early in the year, the trees still have leaves on them. So now you have like all the trees with the leaves turning, and then they're covered in snow, big like thick, heavy white snow. So it was you know it's kind of a kind of unusual. It's not your typical, typical looking snowstorm. No, that's that's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, just we'll move over over to well, we'll hand over to me uh, about what I've been up to this <laughs> week, um, and uh, and the answer is not a great deal at all. Um, so uh, this will be a very short section. In fact, the only thing I've actually done of any kind of note uh, this week is I've listed some lenses from my cupboard. Um, in my effort to raise the funds for me to justify keeping my 70 mil, sorry, 75 mil biotar. And uh, so on eBay uh, right now, um, I'm looking at them at the moment. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a bit uncomfortable about it as I'm looking at them. Um, I'm thinking, and one of them's got bids on it as well. So I'm thinking, well, that's definitely gone now. Um, but the uh, the first one being 
uh, my 50mm f1.4 Canon LTM uh, which is out the door because um, of the one that uh, we talked about last week uh, because I now have calls so I don't need that one anymore and I want to have calls so uh, so that's on, that's on its way out at the moment um, I've also uh, got on the sales shelf I've got my Helios 40 uh, my enormous uh, silver Helios 40 that's a, with a Zenit M39 mount um, which is lovely but <laughs> It's like it's that thing, isn't it? Helios forty versus Biotar seventy five. Mm, I want the Biotar seventy five, even though really the difference is not that great. It just yeah, handles, it's pretty. It's pretty big difference. It's in reality, you look at the photographs. It, it's not, but it's actually as I said before. Um, I prefer the seventy five millimeter look over the eighty five. I feel it encourages me to use it and I just prefer the handling because it's it's smaller, lighter. As it's a big beast is the Helios forty. Um and then next to that I've got a Nikon Nikkor in fact not even my, my, it might not even say Nikon actually, uh, because it's uh, one of the old Nikon lenses and it's an eight point five centimeter F two um which I'm <laughs> I'm longingly looking at at the moment, thinking, "Am I doing the right thing?" Um, but it's it's a it's a it's a particularly good thing in itself because it's a Nikon that actually focuses the right way, um, as opposed to all the other Nikons. Because this is an LTM lens, uh, they they made it uh, to focus in the correct way, um, and it's a really nice lens. And I'm going to miss it because it's not particularly big. It feels great. It's the it's the best um, Jupiter. Eight, uh, Jupiter 9 I've ever used because it's a sonar uh, lens it's basically got the same linear lineage as that and which obviously goes back to the Carl Zeiss uh, 8.5 centimeter sonar f2 um, and then finally uh, my LTM 105 millimeter no it's actually no it's a 10.5 centimeter f 2.5 LTM again a lens that I've hardly actually used uh, but I think I've just got a problem with 100 millimeter lenses and I'm thinking well if I'm not I'm not, if I'm not using it, why why do I keep it when I can potentially keep a 75 mil biotar? So uh, so yeah, so they've 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 hit eBay. So that's 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 my news. I guess for this week. Yeah, I, uh, I've sold lenses too, but I'm not going to talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have a question for you guys on that. Mm. Like, I can't sell any of my babies how can you let these go i mean i, mm. I it well, drives I mean, me crazy because there's things that i need to just get rid of and i can't do it i just hang on to them I, how, the how way i think it? about it is like if by the time you have like a hundred children yeah you might as well sell a couple of them every now and then <laughs> holy <Yes>. crap <laughs> <laughs> classic lenses podcast where we hate children <laughs> I uh, it's a Monty Python moment. That whole Catholic <laughs> Catholic song. What was it? Every oh god, every yeah. Every sperm every, is sacred. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> We've got to sell the lot of you. I, I know what you mean, though. You know, um, Johnny and Simon. They're they're in the business of selling lenses, so I, I assume that they find it a little bit easier. But I, I struggle similarly. Um, and when I decide to sell a lens, it's usually, I don't know, it's usually because I'm 100% convinced that I'm not going to regret it. 
And even then, like this 35 1.8 Canon that I just bought, I, I used to have this lens and I have now repurchased it. So I'm usually, I'm very often wrong when I sell a lens. But the, the one I sold tonight, right before we recorded, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to rebuy because it was the 40 millimeter Summicron. Uh, and I have the Minolta M Rocor version, which I bought for half the price and they're the same lens. So that's why I sold the Summicron. I think, you I know, think, oh, sorry, Joe. Oh, I, I'm sorry, Simon. I was just going to say, uh, making the decision on selling something, I always err on the side of keeping the classic lens. So last year, I ended up having to make a choice between selling one of my engineer lenses or a Canon EF 300-2.8, which I was using as a sports lens. Mm. And I assumed that I was with Ed graduating from high school that I was done shooting uh, football. So I sold the EF and that set a precedent. I just started selling off most of my uh, older uh, autofocus lenses and and not selling the uh, the good classic stuff that I have. And now I just get grief every time we go out from Ed. Why did you sell that 300? I need it. So... In January, I'm going to be repurchasing that one for him. Wow. Um, I, I For myself, I mean, I have a much better time selling other people's lenses, which is why <laughs> I, that's what I do for a, a living. But I, I don't sell a lot of my own lenses. I'm kind of like Perry on that one. Like, in, if I'm absolutely sure I'm not going to use it, or if I have three copies of it, then I'll sell it. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, so I, there's, I haven't sold a lot of lenses. Actually, a couple of notable, there's a few notable uh, exceptions to that. I mean, one being the lens that actually Simon has in his hands right now. Um, I, you know, I famously sold to Carl because I had, well, I had two, but I thought I had three. Um, so I, the, when I realized I only had two, I was like, oh, I've only have two. I meant to keep both of those, um, but 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 Carl Carl, Carl really needed a non wormy fifty one point four, so I could I couldn't hold out on getting that lens to him. He really needed it. Um, but I mean, had I because I have three cameras, identical cameras, uh, the Canon seven S, and I thought I had a lens on each one a fifty one three four. of those. Yeah, I got three of them. Jeez. Yeah, I need to sell like two out of the three of those. There's another good example. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the other one was uh, I sold Robbie. I had a I had three copies of the uh, Olympus Pen 25 2.8, uh, mm. the Pen F lens, and I find because I, I just kept coming across them like at ridiculous prices at the middle in the middle of the night on eBay. I'm like, well, should I gotta get that? That's only like fifty eight dollars, you know. Um, so I finally sold one of those. So so Robbie has uh, has that lens, um, but I I don't sell a hell of a lot of lenses. Oh well, and then there was so I, what I'm doing now is more as I'm trading things because I don't like to go with a whole runaround of selling stuff anyway. Um, and so I traded, you know, just recently we talked about it. I traded a, an Olympus XA and a couple of robot uh, cameras um, for that uh, Mrocore. So, so yeah, I don't. I really don't sell a lot of lenses either because if I go to the trouble to to buy them in the first place, I don't really buy a lot of lenses in the first place. So I figure if I went to the trouble of getting it, why should I 
you know, get rid of it. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I am, I'm trying to trying to pare it down a little bit. So, hmm. well, in, in in my case, yes, I I, I sell lenses and uh, lenses that I bought specifically to sell. Um, but I don't even like doing that to be honest. I don't like I don't like what I do. <laughs> it's, no, it's no fun whatsoever. I I'm quite happy selling lens adapters. I mean, lens adapters are great to sell. Yeah, you know, but you can't get personally attached to a lens adapter, can you? Uh, they're just boxes. Um, but uh, right. But, but the thing, I'd, problem with lens adapters, and if anybody's been on my site will notice that the uh, the number of lens adapters available is uh, decreasing all the time. That's because of just just difficulty with uh, with suppliers, and so I'm just winding that side of things down, which means I've really got to sell more lenses. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm creating misery for myself. But the the, the thing is about these lenses that as I say they've come out of my cupboard they have lenses that I've had for a, a number of years but they are lenses that I haven't used for some time in fact I think I put a sample shot up with the the, the, the Nikon 8.5 centimeter with the advert and I think it was probably the last photograph I took with that lens and it was, must be about two years ago and and it's an LTM lens and I think this is leading me to somewhere else now so I've got two LTM lenses up there which I actually I really like adapting those to Sony and using them using them on digital uh, because they're they're not too big although ironically the the the, the two nickels are, are really really heavy lenses relatively to to what they are um, in, in size but they don't take up much space and so you can put them into a small bag but the the thing is they are LTM lenses and that experience I had a week and a half ago now of shooting with the Contax G2 uh, that's on loan to me from Jamie North I, I really enjoyed that experience much more than I've, I know that I would have done if I was shooting with uh, with my M2 so I've, now that I've actually I realised now I'm selling two lenses that would fit that M2 and I'm thinking am I beginning to turn my back on the M2 because at the end of the day if you've got a, a camera there that's worth a fair bit of money and you're not using it um, and you're not going to use those lenses and you would actually rather use other lenses because I have a, a 90mm f2.8 sonar for, for a G2 even though I don't actually own a G2 but I've got the lens ready for it uh, along with a 45mm lens and I'm sure that I will get use out of those so what is the point of keeping these things and as you can tell I'm I'm really trying to justify selling these lenses that are on eBay at the moment which is uh, it's upsetting me just looking at them at the moment don't sell the 8.5 centimeter Nikkor, man. That lens is amazing. It's lovely. <laughs> it's it's nice. It takes great photos and it's nice to look at and nice to hold. But uh, even though it's got like a little, um, I think it's it, I think it's, it's spent some period of time without a lens cap, and there's a, there's like an abrasion right in the center of the uh, of the element, the front element, which is really annoying when you when you're looking yeah. at it. But it makes zero difference, as we know, to the actual. Uh, to, to the shots but oh, it's a, it's a it's a lovely lens and that and they're thinking well I've got other I've got other lenses but actually have I I, I don't I think I have an 85 f2 I've got 85 2.8s which I'm happy with I've got that 92.8 and of course I've got the 75 uh, 1.5 which frankly is always is going to get the gig over this one most times anyway or I'll take the uh, my calls I sonar for the for the contacts the 85 2.8 which I which is probably my favourite portrait lens, really. So, 
it's it's keeping things for the sake of keeping things. I'm not sure how healthy that is. It's a plus, and this is the big plus. You know, yeah. I need I need the money. <laughs> you know, mm. because that's the thing. You know, I work for myself, so if I don't sell things, then you know I can't pay the bills. And if I'm going to keep nice things, such as a 75 millimeter biotar, then I have to justify it and really make sense. I'm, I'm doing the, I'm doing this thing now that we say at the end of every show: be like Carl. You know, I'm trying to be like Carl. Carl was really good at this. He would he would cut down through his collections. I'm not using that again. Why am I keeping it? And he yeah. rarely regretted it, apart from apart from the mere one. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is what brings us back to selling children, right? Yeah. <laughs> so Simon, when you go to your cabinet and you look at your lenses, yeah. Do you have an emotional connection with them? Like you remember what photo you took with a particular lens and you go, oh yeah, we had that moment. And because I do that all the time, I, I look at mine and I think, oh God, that's the, that's the lens that I, I was using when, uh, when Sylvie went swimming, I, I could never sell that lens. So yeah. because of the, the moment that that represents in the memory, do, do you, do you think that way too? I, I do yes um but really i do but to to but it's it's go it's it's not as much as i used to i mean certainly when i when i first started off in this journey with with classic lenses i could look at a photograph and i and i would know exactly which lens and probably what aperture i used uh, to to take a photograph and it was very easy for me to make that connection um, i seem to be losing that um and it's not because like my memory's fading, which it is. Uh, but you know, I can still look at some of the, those older photographs when when it was truly passionate for me. When I was on this Voyager discovery with old lenses, I can look at those photographs and I still know which photo, which camera, which lens I actually used. These days, I, I don't. I'm, I seem to be a little bit less attached to some of the the newer purchases that, that I've had. But there are lenses that yeah, I, I look at and think. That's just, you know, I've got a Jupiter 11 in there, and it's the best Jupiter 11 I've I've, I've ever used. Um, because as I said before, I, I used to test every Jupiter 11 that came my way, and I would always just keep the best. And I and I have the best Jupiter 11 I've ever used in the cupboard. I haven't used the Jupiter 11 for over a year, but there's no way I'm going to sell it. Um, partly because it's not actually worth that much. Um, whereas these lenses that I've right. sold, I've I've put on eBay, they're all worth something. They're worth a few quid. And 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 think myself, you know, if it's if something's only worth thirty pounds, forty pounds, you know, fifty dollars, sixty dollars, it's not going to make any great difference to my life if I sell it and and and, and it goes towards you know uh, the heating or something like that. Um, it's just going to be forgotten about. Whereas selling these these larger lenses, these more valuable lenses, means that I actually get to keep something that I've I've wanted for a long time. And it's more of a case of that seventy five mil lenses one of those lenses where I've convinced myself that I don't want one of those. It's, it's a, it's just, they're just too expensive for what they are. Um, so don't worry about it. It's like, like wanting a Ferrari, but you never know, you're never going to have one. So it doesn't really matter. And well, when you, when you get one that's personally put into your hand and you've got the means to, to keep it, then it yeah. sort of makes you think a little bit differently. I, I don't know how many times I had this conversation with, uh, with Carl about selling lenses because I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat. I mean, I would say, uh, maybe what 10% of the lenses I own are worth more than a hundred dollars, you know, or far less than that, or I paid more than a hundred dollars for. So it's like, is it even worth the trouble to sell something at a certain point? I mean, I'd much rather would like trade things 
But to sell it, I mean, if I'm going to put, I always used to say, do this math with Carl. I'm like, all right, so you you bought this for $130. He's like, yeah. And I'm like, you're going to sell it for $150. Yeah. Okay. So you have to put it on Facebook. You have to pack it up. You have to mail it. You have to pay for the postage. You have to do all this. I'm like, so you basically, it's all that trouble to make $20. I mean, it's not worth it, <laughs> you know? And and so for me, that's like most of my the lenses I have fall into that category. They're just totally not worth the trouble um, to even go and do it, you know, to to sell them. So I'm sort of like, yeah, I'll just I'll just keep them until the day comes along if somebody wants to like buy it for me in cash in person. That's cool. Or if somebody if I want to trade, you know, something to someone else for something, that's cool. But I can't imagine going to the trouble of selling most of what I have. Uh, cause it would just be too much of a hassle to ultimately not really make any money on it. Well, these, yeah. And with, with, sorry, I was just going to say just, just on, on that point, I just realized that these lenses that I'm selling are, uh, some of the most expensive lenses by value that I own. Um, and that's the thing, just, just like yourself, I'm looking at what's in the cupboard at the moment and there's loads of lenses in there that mean something to me and they all do something interesting and so on. But the, the vast majority of them I picked up for pennies and they're not they're not particularly expensive lenses there's, there's a few special ones in there but I don't think any of them are actually worth as much as some of the lenses I'm actually just about to, well I have actually put onto eBay now so so two things on that because I think it is a very interesting question um, I, I have a really weird system of rationalizing this stuff to myself uh, <laughs> but but I, I'm reminded of I think when Hamish Gill bought his M10P um, part, part of the rationale I believe was that he had purchased enough things that were not M10Ps <laughs> that added together were around the same price as an M10P <laughs> and so he could just sell that stuff and kind of trade it and convert it into one um, but one thing that I do which is totally irrational is uh, I decided that when I have photos that I really, really like and I consider them sort of keepers that I would print out and, and hang, uh, that to me is worth at least a thousand Hong Kong dollars or, or 100 pounds. So for me, when I buy a piece of gear, I, I sort of think about has it paid for itself? And using that metric of, of valuing photographs, the stuff pays for itself super quickly. <laughs> wow, I've, I've yet to find anything that I've done in the last 25 years that it would be worth 100 a hundred dollars. Well, I mean, I'm, it's not that I would. <laughs> I don't think anyone would buy it for that amount. It's the the way I thought about it is, you know, I enjoy making these photos, and then if someone yeah. put a gun to my head and said, "I'm going to delete this photo forever unless you pay me," how much would I pay them to be able to still have that photograph? And that's oh, roughly the amount that I, I I sort of stumbled upon for sort of my favorite images. Um, and then I just kind of rationalized that. So you know, the X Pan paid for itself in like. A month. <laughs> wow. I wouldn't pay myself a hundred dollars for any of my photos. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I'm very emotionally attached to, to shooting. That makes not sense. so much it to does. the gear though. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, like most of the stuff that I buy, when I do buy two copies of stuff like Johnny, I'll get one that's nice to satisfy my inner collector, and one that's a user that I'm, I'll just beat up when I'm yeah. out there shooting on the street. Um, cause I don't, I don't get emotionally attached to the gear. I get emotionally attached to the images that I make with them. Um, and 
yeah, that's sort of my my totally illogical math uh, to justify the price. Yeah. Right. Well, let's let's uh, let's let's move move things on. And by the way, if you uh, want to buy any of our lenses, they're currently on eBay, and we'll put links up um, in the uh, in the in the show notes. Um, to help you there, can I, can I just throw this out there? I think that. 8.5 cm Nikkor is the finest 85 millimeter lens for rangefinders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would not for surprise sure. me. Um, uh, okay, so uh, that's that's our our week's done, and I think that this is uh, quite a um, a momentous moment in the history of our podcast uh, because this is actually the first time we've had a, a guest. Uh, come on the show that uh, is, is is here because he's got a book to plug. <laughs> um, and um, so um, so so John, um, I'm teasing you there, um, and you know that um, that uh, apart from being a uh, an avid, uh, as we said before, cat photographer with classic lenses, um, you're um, you're you're also a a published author, um, and you have. Uh, many books to your name i think actually on this page here i think it says you've got fifth is it 15 that you've been involved in but you've done some co-authoring of, of, of some books as well haven't you uh, um yeah the the totals actually i'm working on 23 right now so right. race of aces is 22 right right well that's it so you 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 have a new book coming out uh uh next next year in january i believe i believe it is is that is that right Indeed, yeah. This one was sort of the culmination of my life's work, and in a way, so I was involved in a, in a helicopter mishap in Afghanistan, and while we were sitting on the ground uh, in the middle of the Hindu Kush, uh, I kind of thought to myself, you know, if I make this, if I make it out of this, there's a bucket list of, of things I want to do. And I was very fortunate to, to knock number one off the list a couple of years ago. That, that became indestructible. And number two uh, ended up being Race of Aces, the, the book that's coming out in January. Right. And I'm just going to say this, this, is, this is where we, we first come into contact because there was, a, there was an episode um, a, a, a while back, uh, an infamous episode where we, we first uh, discussed that I think it was with Mike Novak uh, when we were talking food and Jepson's Malort and so, somehow uh, that led to you uh, writing into us and um, telling us about things that you might have wanted to have uh, done with uh, truck torpedoes um, while, whilst in the helicopter so uh, um, indeed yeah, yeah there, was, there was a village that uh, so I was embedded in Afghanistan in 2010 during the surge and I was in Logar province which was uh, southeast of, of Kabul along the uh, close to the Pakistan border and the Kabul attack network which was the insurgent network that was uh, feeding the insurgency in Kabul itself uh, weapons and, and explosives ran through um, old old supply lines that dated back to the uh to the russian war in the 80s so through places like the sorkab valley which is north of our our uh forward operating base and uh and so i arrived at a very busy time with a national guard chinook helicopter unit 
And from there, I went out on ground patrols and air, uh, flew a lot of air assault missions. I, I spent about 100 hours in the back of Chinooks and Blackhawks taking photos of, of what the, the uh, air crew were doing. Um, and uh, I have no idea where I was going with this, except that that's, that's what I did while I was, while I was out there. And I, I, my intent was to, uh, I, I was actually a true volunteer. I wasn't assigned, uh, I wasn't working with any newspaper or anything like that. I went out, I wrote stories uh, for the uh, uh, small town papers back home in Oregon. And then from there, I kind of branched out, ended up writing a couple of uh, magazine articles and things like that. And when I came home, I uh, sold my uh, photographs to the Hoover Institute to pay for the trip so that ended up being the the one thing i well i sold the photos and then i sold my little black sports car which still kills me but you know i was i was basically gone for six months without an income so i had to do something to pay the bills so i sold my pontiac solstice in the photographs so i'll just think about the, the process here so how how did you actually get what how how did you get find yourself in, in a in a Chinook in in Afghanistan because you're you're not um, you're you're not in the army or air force or, what, or whatever it is you're a, um, this is from a, a journalistic point of view um, so what's 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 the story that get, gets you into that position? Well, um, it dates back to my sixth sixth book, yeah, uh, called The Devil Sandbox. Uh, there was an Oregon Infantry Battalion that was sent into Iraq uh, right at the start of the insurgency. And they were in one of the worst sections uh, of Baghdad, northeast, where right on the edge of Sadr City and north of Sadr City, at a time when uh, the Shia uprising, uh, the two Shia uprisings in 2004 took place. So they were right in the middle of that. Uh, they also had elements that were in the Second Battle of Najaf and also Second Fallujah. Uh, so they they saw a lot of uh, very heavy combat. We had, I think there were about 800 guys total in the battalion and one female who was their photojournalist uh, Rebecca May Brun, Sergeant Bruns, uh, incredible combat photographer uh, the battalion came home with 77 Purple Hearts and nine men killed in action uh, so it was uh, the most um, combat that any Oregon unit had experienced since World War II so one of the soldiers was engaged to my daughter's first grade teacher and when he came home on leave uh, in September or October of 04, he'd just come back from the, the second battle in Najaf. And he started telling me the things that he saw and experienced, and they just didn't bear any resemblance at all to what I was reading in the paper about the battle. So when the guys started coming home, I started interviewing them, and I wanted to go out but by uh, with them and be out there with them. But by the time I really got into the uh, the mindset that... I was going to make a jump from writing history to contemporary military. Um, they were already en route home. So the moment that sort of solidified that for me, I was watching the chocks come home, chalk, um, the flights coming home at McCord Air Force Base. And I was shooting photos of these reunions on the tarmac. And all of a sudden, a shadow crosses my camera. How did I get emotional just thinking about this? And I hear, hello, John. And I pulled my eye out of the eyepiece and I look up and here's one of my wife's students looking at me in uniform. And the 
thing that got me was I had no idea he was in the service. I had no idea he was in Iraq. And he was uh, my wife's favorite student. And he now has a distillery, and I drink his his whiskey when I write uh, uh, when I when I sit down and write up in the woods. Um, so that was a moment I'm like, yeah, I'm going to write this book. I'm going to make this jump. And as I was researching the book, uh, they got spun up and sent to Katrina. And I walked into the Oregon Military Department one day. I was going to interview the sergeant major of the battalion, and he's like, I can't talk to you today, John. We're going to New Orleans. Um, uh, as a result of the levees breaking and, and Hurricane Katrina. And I looked at him and I said, take me with you. And he walked next door into the general's office. Hey, can we take John in New Orleans? And he said, sure. So I found wow. myself in New Orleans with a, living wow. with an infantry battalion for a month in September of 05, which was um, probably the most life-changing experience I've ever had. I was far more traumatic and um, bonding in, in kind of an unusual way uh, than Afghanistan. And it's also kind of the genesis of my love of photography was, was that time in New Orleans. So because of that relationship with the Oregon National Guard in 2010, I kind of looked around, was having a, a midlife crisis, like, screw this i'm not staying here anymore i gotta go and uh and see what what it is that i'm writing about i, I just felt like a complete poser for spending an entire career writing about combat and the the you know the trauma and trials of it without having experienced it so i went out and, and understood it better as a result and you you did that from a aspect of being a, a photojournalist. Is that is that correct for for low, well for regional newspapers? Is is that right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, I I wrote a piece uh, that ended up in the Oregon National Guard uh, Journal called uh, "We're Not Leaving You Here, Brother," um, which was the story of how our Chinook started to catch fire as we were heading up. We had a platoon of Polish infantry aboard with just piles and piles of gear uh, right in the center line of the, uh, the the back bay of the Chinook. And we were flying through the Hindu Kush to a little base called uh, Azuristan. And this, this outpost was entirely manned by Afghan National Army and they were surrounded by about 250 Taliban and things were, were pretty grim up there for them. And the helicopters that were going in to support that uh, outpost had no force protection. There wasn't like a helicopter landing zone inside the, the the base. It was outside, and there was like one strand of barbed wire around the landing zone. So they were taking fire. So the guys were were not super thrilled at having to go do this because we didn't have Apache escort. The, we had no gunships that day. And as we were we were flying up there. Um, the crew chief who was sitting on the, the ramp attached uh, to a line that connected him to the helicopter. So if he fell out, he'd just be dangling by the cord. He stands up and unscrews a panel over his head and all this smoke starts wafting out. And at that moment, I'm like, something's not right. And then I heard our pilot, uh, command pilot, who is this freaking awesome guy from Georgia, and uh, Joe Neal, he was he was uh, incredible. Um, uh, anyway, Joe goes, 
uh, Joe Spiel, I'm sorry. Uh, he goes, land this aircraft immediately. And Eric West was a co-pilot that day. And they auto-rotated and literally dropped us out of the sky. I think we dropped 2,500 feet in 60 seconds. And we were surrounded by sawtooth mountains. I mean, just huge ridge lines. So like dragon spines, I think is how I described them in El Alpentine. Um There happened to be a dry lake bed directly below us. So like, if I ever had any question as to whether or not there was any sort of um, divine presence, I think that solidified my belief that, yeah, there's probably somebody looking out for us because man, any other place we would have been trying to land on the side of a hill with a helicopter that was starting to catch fire. And we ended up sitting down and um, I have run a, an organization that provides training support for the Oregon National Guard and Army Reserve and SWAT. Um, we worked with FBI SWAT a couple of times. Uh, so I'm familiar with the firearms and the guys told me if we ever go down, grab the extra M4 that's sitting in the back. Well, I was the last one uh, next to the ramp sitting in the last seat. So I, that meant I was the first one off the helicopter. And I completely forgot to grab that M4. I just M4 carbine, right? Yeah. Not yeah, a, like an M4. I, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I was sitting with a Canon 7D. <laughs> and I jump out. And I just start taking pictures of these Polish troops just bailing out of the helicopter and, and forming a perimeter to protect us. And that article and the photos that I took that day, um, I, I've never actually won an award, but a year after I got back or the spring after I got back, I start getting all these congratulation notices on Facebook. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? And uh, the Department of Defense had awarded me a Thomas Jefferson Award for that article. So um, that felt good. It felt like the time there... Uh, wasn't just for me and my own personal um, journey of exploring what the hell I was actually writing about all these years that I actually did some good too. So, John, um, the just one thing you mentioned earlier, and this is this is nowhere near as you know the same degree of seriousness as a lot of you, what you've been saying. Are you originally Canadian? I am not by I any just chance. Love Canada. I love Canada. Okay, just you used the term hoser earlier, and I have never heard a non-Canadian <laughs> use that term. Uh, yeah, we had a Canadian in the dorms my freshman year, and we watched Strange Brew a lot, so there was hoser, 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 that. And I grew up in California, so I have some surfer lingo, lingo in me, too, that still, you know, creeps up every now and then. So even though I wasn't a surfer, I bodyboarded. Um, hoser is like, everybody says, hey, Hoser. I mean, it's SCTV. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, I mean, Bob and Doug McKenzie, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Have a donut, you Hoser. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, John, when you were photographing out... Um, I, I what, what were you what were you shooting with just to you know bring things back to to I I had a uh, I was a Canon guy I, actually when when I was in New Orleans I had an Olympus uh, point and shoot I'd been shooting like I went to China Lake uh, which is a naval weapons test center uh, in 2003 I was working on a documentary project and I go out uh, with my wife's 
Pentax K1000 and a 75 to 150 zoom and attempted to take photos of F-18s doing touch and goes right next to me. I was standing next to the landing signal officer on the runway. Um, it was a glorious experience and everything came came out blurry because I had no idea what I was doing and it was at sunset. So <laughs> I totally blew an opportunity there. Uh, so a couple of years later, or yeah, two years later, I had this Olympus point and shoot. We actually made the jump to digital and that camera lasted two hours in post-Katrina New Orleans. And the last photo I took of it was the entrance to the New Orleans Performing Arts Center, which the door was propped open. There were a bunch of cables going inside because the 41st Infantry Brigade had made the Performing Arts Center its headquarters. And there was a rooster nesting on top of all the wires and cables right at the in the doorway and i it was just such a non sequitur there were so many moments like that in new orleans uh but that one really stands out the rooster hanging out at the entrance to the to the performing arts center uh so when my camera failed the soldiers came up to me and said hey i have this i have this will you shoot for for us because you know we're on patrol i can't be taking photos so all of a sudden i find myself in a photojournalism uh, role, which I had never anticipated. And I shot with everybody's point and shoots and came out of New Orleans with about 1500 photos. And after that, I thought, okay, I love doing this. So I got to get good at it. So I, I think I bought an Olympus D10, S10, uh, fixed, fixed lens DSLR. It was the first one I had. And then I made the jump to a Canon 10D and a 40D and then the 7D in 09. Um, and I didn't really, I mean, I used photography in the past to copy photographs. Uh, we did a lot of that at the National Archives in the 90s. And then also I was copying photos out of uh, World War II veterans photo albums uh, in grad school and things like that with that K1000. Uh, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And so I kind of got hooked up with our local shop, Focal Point Photography. And the owner and, and the current owner now, Nate, um, Nate Woods, just kind of mentored me along and coached me. And I spent uh, literally hours, hours and hours in our local wildlife refuge um, photographing animals birds and egrets and osprey and things like that and I started taking my son out and that's how he developed his love of photography too was, was out in the wildlife refuge wait there's there's a missing piece of this puzzle your your camera your olympus that failed in new orleans did the rooster destroy it oh no no it was the uh the um the heat and humidity took it down and I was zooming in, zooming out, and I was taking tons of photos with that thing. And it, you know, the gears were plastic, and it just stripped. And mm -hmm. I couldn't, I couldn't get the the lens to to function after that. So, right, uh, it was uh, that was rugged. I mean, in Afghanistan, there were there were moments where you know things were we had you know kind of scary moments. But New Orleans, New Orleans was just grim. Uh, I got to know the soldiers and sort of the soldier ethos and mindset. And that was something that was really special to me. But 
seeing what Americans did to each other at a time of great crisis was uh, was it kind of took my um, my worldview and dumped it on his ass. And frankly, mm. for about a year after that, I was I was a jerk. <laughs> I was a really embittered jerk. And uh, the one thing that came out of that was not not just the friendships and the connections that I made within the the National Guard, but uh, we rescued a cat, a kitten, out of a flooded and looted motel, and we got this kitten out um, at a time when eighty percent of the pets in New Orleans died, and this this kitten ended up in uh, a PetSmart in Athens, Georgia, waiting for me when I got out. And the people who rescued these these animals in our area were being harassed by the police. They were being harassed by random uh, stray gangbangers with with firearms. Uh, so we were the battalion that I was with was protecting them. And because of that protection, they said, John, if you want this animal, we'll send it to you when uh, when you get home. And sure enough, they did. And he had uh, adopted a, a pal. So we ended up actually with two. And my friend, Sergeant Vince Jocks, who was a, a two-war veteran and had just come off a medical hold after being blown up in Afghanistan, I mean, in Iraq in 04, um, he rescued a, a puppy named Gustav, a little German Shepherd pup. So we ended up going to the Portland <laughs> airport one night and there were two cat, kittens and uh, and a dog waiting for us. <laughs> so that was uh, quite a joyous moment. And we named the kitten volunteers after the battalion, which is 2nd Battalion, 162nd Infantry, known as the volunteers. And just either called him Vol or Volley. And, and Vol was the first travel cat I had. He went everywhere with us. And so I took pictures of him and in in 09 four years later uh i had a very 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 close friend almost like a son to me uh get killed in, in iraq and for a while i didn't think i was going to be able to write um military history again after that so i tried to write the story of how we rescued volley and the subsequent adventures we had all over the place um I went to 20 publishers and they all said the same thing. The New Orleans stuff is too grim and nobody wants to read about that. So instead of pushing that, I ended up going to Afghanistan the next year. So at some point I'd like to go back and write some fluffy kitten stories and illustrate them with photos from all the classic lenses <laughs> that I've used. But it's, for now... I was going to say, it sounds incredible that you know the publishers didn't want to hear about something that happened in their in the in their own back garden and instead of doing that you go to afghanistan instead it's, and it's and i mean we've we've been we have actually had a bit of a chat about this uh, b before and i know that the um the new orleans side of things and and this from what i'm gathered the uh this the soldiers view of working in in new orleans at the time after after the hurricane katrina was in many ways worse than being in Afghanistan is that is that is that about right oh yeah yeah and I, I would run into guys from like the 82nd airborne uh when I was or who had been in the 82nd airborne in 05 when I was in Afghanistan and I would ask them were you in Katrina because we ran into uh your unit uh several times and I'm like oh yeah yeah we were there I was there 
And I'd always ask them the same question, you know, so what's worse? What's harder, Afghanistan or New Orleans? And they all said the same thing. And I, I felt the same way. It was New Orleans because it happened in our own backyard. New Orleans became a war zone. And as the levees broke and people were, were uh, being flooded out and dying, there was so much looting going on just blocks away. I mean, like maybe two blocks from where we were we were staying, which was the uh, New Orleans Baptist Seminary. Uh, the unit I was with got moved up there in the middle of the night. It was a it was just like a macabre journey. I mean, we went through downtown New Orleans in a bunch of buses looking out at the what had happened to the city and it was it was appalling like the first bodies i ever saw were on that that drive up but there was a um a gas station where there'd been a a shootout and there was a guy lying dead next to the uh um pumps and there were two other guys killed inside the uh the little convenience store attached actually it was like a meat market i think attached to the gas station and i remember standing next to the humvee looking at this scene and i'm holding my camera or actually one of the soldiers's camera and uh the sergeant ken jackla came up to me and he's like six four really straightforward guy like one of those guys that you just totally trust your life to because he seems to be always on the ball and he looks at me he goes john you're not taking any photos of the dead okay and and i said fine uh, it's like i'm i'm not into that i never got into horror films i don't even watch war movies <laughs> so uh not for fun anyway um so he says to me and i don't want you getting close because see all that congealed blood I'm like yeah I said if you step in that you're gonna slip and then you're gonna fall in it and you're gonna stink and nobody's gonna want to be next to you and the next shower you're gonna have is probably in a month so I'm like <laughs> yes sergeant <laughs> so that was my introduction I was a very sheltered kid I'd never seen anything like this I knew it was gonna be tough but I had no idea like that was it got to the point where we actually saw some cops um disposing of a pistol that they had used in some sort of crime. They probably shot somebody. Uh, I actually, in 09, got interviewed by the FBI uh, for a book I was working on uh, with a with a special operations uh, major who had done the interrogations that led to the uh, killing of the leader of Al-Qaeda Iraq, Musab al-Zarqawi, in 2006. And there was a bunch of operational security concerns. The FBI came out and talked to me. And at the end of that interrogation, discussion, whatever you want to call it, I asked him, look, I have all these photos of these New Orleans cops disposing of a firearm. And when we went, I mean, they threw it into a fire. It cooked off the remaining rounds. And the rounds went over the head of the patrol I was with. So they thought these guys were six months back from Iraq. They thought they were under fire and they just went into um, instant, you know, combat mode and they charged out through the little um, residential neighborhood we were in to find these guys standing next to this little fire they built by a railroad embankment. And 
they're like, what are you guys doing? And they said, oh, we just threw a couple of cans of canned sausage or something into the fire. There was no bullets. Well, later, after the fire went out, there was this pistol lying there. So I told the, the FBI about it, and they're like, uh, nobody's going to investigate that, John. Everybody got a pass. After the levees broke, there was so much violence that, that you know, there was one or two symbolic prosecutions, and that was it. So that was a, a real hard reality to to learn, definitely. But I, I treasure those photos because someday I'd like to see justice meted out. Mm, yeah, that's a, a, a tough time you had there. And of course, you, you did that without any kind of... Uh, training really or, or preparation <laughs> I should say you, know, you literally just got on the plane more or less and, and, and went down there because you'd imagine the if I don't know what the specific route is for uh, uh, embedding a journalist or a photojournalist into into a battalion um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it would normally go through uh, months of uh, of, of training of, of different things and uh, and some psychological um, assessments and, uh, and and preparation on how to deal with uh, with lots of the things that you were going to see but you walked straight into it how old, how old were you at the time if you don't mind me asking <laughs> see I think I was 37 I was 37 I hadn't actually done any I just existed behind a desk for years and years and years and years no exercise i was totally out of shape i was almost 300 pounds i go in there and we're we're walking around doing presence patrols for 14 hours a day and i dropped 30 pounds in a month and i you know like this is the best way to lose weight you know live live in the muck next to a bunch of really fit infantry and uh, you know infantrymen and, and oh okay so here's the other thing i was so clueless we we only had mres to eat right meals ready to eat um i didn't have a knife i was so completely unprepared for this that i didn't even have a pocket knife with me and i didn't realize that the mylar MRE bags can actually be torn open by hand. I thought you had to use a knife. So um, I would just go through everybody's scraps. And I didn't want to keep <laughs> borrowing knives, right? <laughs> like looking like a complete idiot. Um, so uh, I ate a lot of crackers, a lot of MRE crackers. I, I ate a lot of uh, MRE peanut butter, which was great because it constipated you and there was no place to go to the bathroom except the, uh, an outhouse like 100 meters from where we were sleeping. Um, so, yeah, I was completely unprepared and psychologically also. But the thing that got us through or me through was the connections that I made in the friendships that I made within the, uh, the battalion and the pranks that everybody started to, to, to pull, you know, uh, one of the things I learned while, while I was there was that the local papers would, would publish anything I wrote about what their soldiers were doing. So I wrote for the Albany Democrat Herald for the Forest Grove times. I think I wrote a couple stories for the Statesman journal. Um, so anything I wanted to write about these guys, they wouldn't edit it. They wouldn't 
want a particular slant or anything, which wasn't the case when I was in Afghanistan. I was being given kind of directions from the Oregonian that would have uh, essentially destroyed my relationship with the units that I was with if I had asked them the questions they wanted me to ask. Um, so as I was doing this, you know, one of the things you, you hear about the, the whole band of brothers connection with, you know, within the warrior community, really that starts with a sense of respect and validation. And I experienced that for the first time. Like these guys really respected me for being out there, despite how fat I was and how unfit I was, I was hanging with them and I didn't go down. I mean, there were guys who were dropping from heat exhaustion who were far more fit than me. Um, I mean, they'd, they'd have an IV bag in each arm uh, and trying to get them to, to revive. It was, it was pretty rugged. The heat and the, uh, the humidity were just uh, grim. And I, I came very close to going down a couple times, but uh, I always was able to hold it together. And um, that respect and that connection I built became one of the defining aspects of my life. And the way they show guys who are not really part of that brotherhood, they like them, is they pull all sorts of pranks. So one, one day, and you know, you have to give it as good as you, you get it. So I was pulling pranks back, but man, Sergeant Jocks, Vinny is his first name. So in fact, I'm all the photographs that I've been posting on uh, the Bulldogs uh, football games. Uh, that I've been shooting with the Minolta 45, 300-45. Uh, that's Vinny's. He's, he's the de defensive line coach for that team. So that's how I got sucked into uh, taking photos of his of his boys. But Vinny was a classic practical joker. And uh, one night or one, one afternoon, I was exhausted. We'd been out all day. It was like 4 o'clock. We were going to be going out again uh, that night. And I fell asleep. And my little spot was uh, between a couple of rows of um, MRE boxes uh, on the breezeway right in front of the, the, the uh, music hall at the Baptist Seminary. And all of a sudden, I hear Vinny shout, On your feet, the general's here. I'm like, oh, my God. Okay, so what am I supposed to do? I wake up. Like, I, I'm not in the military, but I better damn well stand up if a general's going to come by. So I stand up and I reach down to get my glasses and everybody's at attention by their cots or wherever they were sitting or sleeping. So the whole company's standing at attention. And I look down to grab my glasses and I'm surrounded by porn magazines <laughs> and bottles of hand lotion. <laughs> and the porn mags were open. <laughs> and this was this was not like playboy this was soldier porn which is like like german kink porn <laughs> oh my god i thought i saw a goat in one so uh yeah i'm like freaking out like I've, I've got my little den of sin right around all these mre boxes and i'm just completely panicked and the guys just all busted out laughing it was all a joke so yeah anyway so yeah, so I uh, when I came home, I gave all the photos that I had to the guys and uh, stayed in touch with them. I they're they're some of the closest people to me as a result of that experience. Yeah. Um, 
one one of the things that uh, you, I mean, it had a big effect on your on your on your life and on your on your your personality, as you've as you've already said there. Um, and again, it's just something that we were we were chatting uh, beforehand. Um, photography was something that helped you um, deal with some with with some of your issues. Is that is that fair to say? Oh yeah, totally, totally. And it really, I I think that really began in the summer of '09. I had I had this crazy collaboration go totally south. Uh, with with a with a person who um, was he had a really amazing story, and what he did was really amazing. But he was not a healthy person, and he he literally drove me into the ground to the point where I thought I was having a heart attack at one point, and uh, went to the hospital with chest pains. And that was that was sort of like a turning point moment for me. Um, I thought you know no amount of money is worth my peace of mind and this was the largest contract I'd, I'd ever received before so walking away from it was not uh, an easy thing to do but I walked away from it and I thought my career was over at that point because my uh, agent was pretty upset with me um, the publisher of course was extremely upset the book never got published he went through three other writers and an editor and the book was rejected twice and uh that was that was it and when it came out um or when when it came to light that it had been canceled uh i had just published outlaw platoon with sean parnell and it had done very very well so i felt like that decision was finally vindicated but for a long time i thought i had i had destroyed my career so that summer, I spent a lot of time uh, with my Canon 40D at the time in the wildlife refuge, photographing egrets, and I, I really got into the osprey because they're such unique and interesting creatures. So I took just tons and tons of osprey photos with a Sigma 100 to 500, and then uh, at the end of the summer, I was getting ready to go photograph a um, training. Uh, camp for an MMA fighter I was writing a book with uh, Brian Stan I was writing hard for the fight so I was in my little black solstice driving east when I got the news that uh, uh, that my unofficially adopted son Taylor Marks had been killed in Iraq and he ended up being he and his uh, truck commander um, Earl Warner ended up being the last Oregon National Guardsman to be killed in Iraq and I was supposed to be on that deployment. So, uh, and I had helped train the battalion that went. Uh, my my little volunteer group of civilians uh, had been their bad guys. We were their op four. Um, so, we would be you know in in buildings on the on the military bases here, and they would have to come and clear us out, zip cuff us, detain us, interrogate us, all those sorts of things. And one of the events, I was a um, uh, I was role-playing an Iraqi um, uh, village elder, and uh, the first sergeant's wife took photos of me getting the absolute hell beaten out of me by these guys I was in New Orleans with in this training exercise. And the company commander was, like, in my ear on a radio going, you need to keep resisting, keep fighting, keep fighting. And then my friend Adrian Wilson knocked a tooth out by accident. So. <laughs> <laughs> I hear from him periodically. He just goes, "I still have your tooth, John." 
<laughs> anyway, I digress. Um, after after Taylor died, uh, I basically lost myself in in photography. I I um, I didn't think I was going to write military history again. I didn't think I could do it. Uh, so I was out every day taking photos, um, and eventually. When I went to Afghanistan, uh, that the photography had become not just an adjunct to what I do for a living, but also a passion. But when I came home, it was probably a year and a half before I picked the gear up again. So when I look back at all of the hard drives and, and raids I've got of my photos, there's this gap from uh, the end of 2010 to early 2012. And then I was lucky to to get a um, an option for Indestructible, the book that came out in 2016, and uh, Sony Pictures and uh, Mark Gordon Production picked it up, and I used the uh, the money from from that option to buy a 1DX, uh, some lenses for for the EF system, and then I was doing some uh, theater photography. And the Sony A7R II had just come out. And that was, uh, you know, the first camera that I had ever seen where you could shoot in completely silent mode. And the 1DX in a movie theater, in a, in a theater, sounds like a machine gun. And it's completely disruptive <laughs> to the audience. Yeah. So um, being able to shoot in silent mode was, was vital. And that's when my love of classic photography uh, really developed because I was told, hey, you can adapt anything from any time period onto this. And I thought, really? <laughs> wow. Um, so I started shooting the theater um, uh, productions with Anginus 70-210s and um, Leica 90s, and things like that. I just started getting into it from there. One of the one of the things that got me into it uh, was looking at the photos that uh, Robert Kappa took during World War II. That guy, you know, when you think about landing on Omaha Beach with a Contacts Two and a Zeiss Fifty, and you're you're literally right on the surf line trying to take photos of everything that was happening. Uh, what are those photos called? Like the Magnificent Eleven or the Magnificent Thirteen that survived? I mean, my God. That's a real photographer right there. And then he later did the jump into Germany, the last airborne drop of the war, which was called Operation Varsity. And his photos from the landing zone uh, in March of 45 during that uh, operation are, are even more stunning than the ones on Omaha Beach. So I started looking at those guys and like Walter Ayus, he's the guy, he's the Sports Illustrated photographer who shot the photo of Dwight Clark making the catch in the 82 NFC title game between the Cowboys and the 49ers. Uh, one of the iconic sports moments. Thought, you know, I'm never really going to feel like I'm a true photographer until I can do something like that. And that's how I, I got into all the manual sports photography and, and carrying the camera around and, uh, with manual lenses in, in t into, you know, military exercises too. All right. Well, speaking of cat photography, um, <laughs> 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 I, 
for the for the, for the for the benefit of our listeners, we just had a little pause there, and we yeah. were just wondering. Mm, let, let's let's take it somewhere else now, and um, and Johnny's done a seamless link. Um, so uh, yeah, we'll carry on with this uh, this this cat yeah. link now. Yeah, so so we've gotten to know uh, your your little menagerie of uh, well photographed animals quite well. <laughs> so I think everybody wants to know a little bit more about if you tell us a little bit more about your uh, your your subject matter. And I mean, I will say too, I I'm amazed at the shots you get of like cats and stuff scurrying around with with manual. I mean, I wouldn't even go there. I wouldn't even try. <laughs> so. So I so I'm amazed at the shots you get of them actually. All right, there's there's some some prophecy here that I need to to come clean on. Um so in 09 my volunteer group uh was uh role playing various bad guys for Eugene SWAT. So the SWAT team comes out every year to um Camp Rylia and they work on different scenarios. So we were bank robbers, we were um uh, at one point doing a domestic disturbance where one of my volunteers was our kid and I was role-playing a husband and wife team with actually a friend of mine from high school uh, named Allison. And Allison and I were screaming at each other, you know, creating this domestic violence argument. And meanwhile, the SWAT team is silently getting a ladder to the second floor of the building we were in to get our, our role-playing child out of, out of the house to, to get that person safe. And the whole argument that Allison crafted was that my cat photography was not selling. <laughs> that we were broke. So, and at one point she screamed so loud. She said, yeah, and you're no Stephen Ambrose either. And all the SWAT guys outside just busted out laughing. And uh, so, yeah, the cat photography and cat portraits that only my mother would buy became sort of a running joke for years. And then flash forward to, you know, 2015, 2016, this is what I do. Like every day I'm taking my, my, family of dogs out with the cat now in in 2018 2019 to um to exercise them and i shoot every day so my subject matter are these animals <laughs> so that's that's how it all kind of uh came about um we have a jordanian dog named gwen uh, she was rescued by uh, an Apache gunship pilot uh, named Cassie Wiley, who is now a police officer in Nevada. And she and I had met in Afghanistan. She essentially saved my life. We went back to Azuristan, that little outpost that we were flying to when the helicopter went down, um, the next day. And uh, everybody was taking fire going into the LZ. And Cassie uh, suppressed an, uh, a rocket propelled gun uh, rocket propelled grenade team uh, that was shooting into the landing zone so that we could get in and I ended up meeting her and interviewing her she was one of maybe two or three uh, female gunship pilots in the in the brigade and we stayed friends and she ended up um, finding these little orphaned puppies in a subsequent deployment to Jordan and we raised some money and got two of the four out and she has one, and I have the other. So she's the uh, the gold one. 
then we have an Aussie Shepherd that was a rescue, and then that weird little bat-eared flying monkey dog that's sort of a proto-skunk cat thing uh, named Musette. That was my, my daughter's dog. So those three come out, and the, the cat, um, the white cat is Sylvie. And I didn't want another animal, but the kids wanted a kitten last year. So we ended up with two. And Sylvie quickly established that she has so much energy that she could not be an indoor cat. And I didn't want them wandering around the neighborhood. So I just got into the habit of taking her along uh, for the dog walks and she followed along and and I started taking photos of the way they were interacting which just cracks me up they're always doing something weird so that's that's the genesis of that but Johnny you're a cat fan tell me about you have a cat do you photograph I, it <laughs> I, no she won't allow that she 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 does she does not allow that she does not submit to to photographs she as soon as I get the as soon as I get the camera out she you know, she turns away, turns her head, stops whatever she's doing, walks away. I mean, it's like she really knows, and she's like, "I'm not having it." So <laughs> I, I, I get, I get very little opportunity to do any cat photography. Gotcha, Roger. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I do a lot of testing on Sylvie. You know, I'll get a new lens, and yeah. Yeah. Everybody I know in my life is so tired of me photographing them that if I even point a camera their way, they just look at me and go, Dad, stop it. Or, John, get that camera out of my face. <laughs> Sylvie never does that. I mean, she'll, <laughs> she, for whatever reason, I think she's a bit of a ham. So I'll put her in a tree. I have a bokeh tree. So I'll put her on this one branch. And I'll step back, and if the, the sun's just right, I'll be able to get some good examples of what the, the bokeh looks like with a particular lens. So whenever I get a new lens, I take the cat out to this tree, put her in the tree, and she'll sit on that branch for a while, and then she gets annoyed and leaves. But uh, uh, it always gives me an opportunity to see what the lens is capable of. So she's sort of my, my test test subject, too. Yeah, I do that with my cat, too. Perry, what kind of cat do you have? A fat one. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. Sylvia's gained, she was like five pounds earlier this spring, like when, when she decided to go swim up at Detroit Lake in the Cascades. She was maybe five and a half. And then we put her on the scale at the vet last week. She's 11.6 pounds. And I thought she had FIP. I was like really worried she had the Wait, wet form. 11.6? Yeah. My cat is 18 pounds. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Part, Holy partly God. because, I mean, a lot of that is because she's just a huge cat. Like, when she stretches out, I, I think she, you know, she's a, a mix. I adopted her as a rescue in Canada when she was a tiny kitten. And I'm convinced that she's part Norwegian forest cat, part, partly because of how she looks. But also, when she stretches out, she's like well over a meter long. Oh, my wow. God. <laughs> yeah. She, she, you know, I have a, I have a three-seater couch in my living room. And when she stretches out, she will occupy all three of the cushions. Wow. <laughs> so she's not like one of these little cats, but she's also incredibly fat. Um, <laughs> wow, my and, cat and, weighs know, five and a half pounds. So, <laughs> yeah, my cat would eat your cat. 
<laughs> sounds like it. Oh my god! But hey, uh, Norwegian forest cats are beautiful. They are really, really good-looking animals. Oh yeah, no, she's gorgeous. I just, I just, you know, she's a very good photographic test subject. I do exactly the same thing and test most of my lenses on on my cat. But every night she likes to sleep on my leg as well, um, <laughs> which is not good for blood flow. I will say. <laughs> yeah, you can't get gangrene from uh, <laughs> from you know blood loss in the in the leg there. But uh, so, how did she handle the trip? from Canada to Hong Kong. Did that traumatize her? Uh, well, I don't know. I, I had never asked. Um, but <laughs> she, I, I did do a lot of reading about that. Um, and what I did was, the, you know, you don't give them any food during the, the flight. So I in her water bottle um, there, I, I put this sort of like herbal cat relaxer. Uh, which was supposed to sort of calm her nerves, and then what I read was because <laughs> they go cat, into... Are are you saying that you drugged your cat up? Yeah, essentially. Um, but but then they go into a uh, a pressurized and temperature controlled hold at the back, and what I read is they sort of freak out for the first little while, and then because she's in her carrier and it smells familiar, after a while when they realize they can't do much, they just sleep for most of the flight. Um, so when she came out after the flight she seemed totally fine just you know what cats do when they're in a new environment because she she's an indoor cat so it's not like your cat where you know she's running around all over the place so when she's in a new environment it's just like come out find somewhere to hide and then slowly explore so i i think i think she just took the flight as a long mandatory nap <laughs> all right well that's the way to do it yeah when when gwen arrived she was maybe seven or eight weeks old and uh the she flew in from jordan to chicago spent the night in chicago and then when she flew from chicago to portland um her water dish froze over so when we got her oh. her her food and her water were totally frozen so she she like this poor dog i mean the first thing i did i i was i was worried that um, you know, a dog from the Middle East may have some unusual bacteria or disease or germs or something. So I didn't want to put her around the other dogs until uh, until I was sure she was healthy. So she arrived on like a Friday evening so or Friday afternoon, so I couldn't take her to the vet. It was too late. So I decided to take her up to the cabin in the woods that I ride in. And I drove up there in my little Pontiac GTO, which is the car that you will meet, Johnny, when I come to a binge shop at uh, Central <laughs> Camera next, next spring. Um, and it was snowing. And this car, this, this little Pontiac, has 400 horsepower, but it does not do inclement weather like that well at all. And I got Gwen out of the car at one point, and she looks down at, like, why is the sand so cold? <laughs> the look on her face was just pure astonishment. And it was freezing cold. And I ended up um, getting the GTO stuck in a, in a sand, or a sand, in a uh, snowbank. <clears throat> and I couldn't get it out. And then I blew the radiator trying to get it out. And we ended up getting rescued by a, um, evangelical Christian tow truck driver 
who told me it was God's will that all of this happened and that we were saved by it, which was pretty amazing. And we were hyperthermic at that point because it was so cold. Uh, so that 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 was Gwen's initiation to uh, the United States, and I took photos of all of this, of course. So all it was all going down. I'm like taking photos of this poor dog that had never seen snow before, just in a totally foreign environment. You know, she'd been in you know the Middle East desert. And uh, flash forward about six months, I was uh, up off a of fire access trail, and uh, my. Um, my daughter's little bat-eared papillon locked herself in my GTO with the engine running. And the same tow truck driver saved us. And he gets out of the car and he looks at, or out of the tow truck and looks at me and goes, man, what is it with you and your dogs? <laughs> well, it's God's will. But uh, anyway, I digress. So I, I actually have a question for Perry. Yeah. So, your photos of the uh, of the protests are mm -hmm. amazing, and your photographs of the police are um, they're foreboding. You know, there's <laughs> there's you. just there's just such power in the imagery you're capturing. Um, my question for you, Perry, is why do it? Why take the risk? Why why expose yourself to potential harm in the street and potential arrest for posting the photos like what, what what's driving you there oh man that is a meaty question uh i, I honestly i don't know um and do you it, take your cat with you no definitely not uh i i really don't know it just seems like the thing to do because there's nothing else that I can do um, it I mean partly as the situation has deteriorated and gotten worse and worse and, and the police have become more and more heavy handed and the protests have become more and more violent I, I think I, I partly got desensitized to some of that um, because it's it's got to the point where it's like you know what I could be just walking home from work and just get the crap beaten out of me by the cops um, or like those shots of the police that I posted recently I I was out for afternoon tea and then I, I went outside and there were riot police everywhere I was like oh uh, okay I guess you know there's what am I going to do there's riot police everywhere I'm going to photograph them and you know, it's one of those things where I think there are so many photographers and amazing photojournalists here. Um, the stuff that I'm doing, I don't think is particularly special. It's just my way of uh, partly documenting, partly just I don't know. I don't even know what I'm trying to accomplish with these photographs. But but if you if you look out there, there are some people who are just pumping out unbelievable images. Uh, both photojournalists and just sort of hobbyist photographers. Um, actually, there's one guy I want to plug in particular. Uh, he is the... He owns a camera store here where they sell a bunch of Leica stuff. Um, but he also shoots and he's part of this... Uh, what do you call him? Like a photo collective. So his, his name is... Um, his name is Joe. And his Instagram account is Cheng Wai Hawk, which is 
C-H-E-N-G-W-A-I-H-O-K. Uh, his his shop is awesome, but his photos of the protests are phenomenal. They're unreal. Um, so if you want to see some seriously amazing stuff, I would go check out his his Instagram feed. Yeah, but definitely. as to what motivates me, <laughs> yeah, I can. I, I really don't gonna, know. I was just, yeah. just going to say I've got. I've got. Um, strangely enough, I've uh, he started following me recently, which I I pretty pretty. I'm putting down to the fact that you're connected with him because I can't see any other reason why he would follow me. Uh, but I have actually started to follow him as well. And uh, what you just said there about his photographs, they're quite extraordinary. Um, there's there's shots here with, uh, I don't know if it's a man or a woman, holding up a, a crucifix and some rosary beads at the uh, at the riot police in front of her. And there's Oh, that was Halloween. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, so what they did was um, they went in and tear-gassed the largest Halloween party in... Uh, Asia because it was an unauthorized assembly and people were wearing masks um, and so there was this really powerful image of, of it's an old lady standing there with a crucifix uh, and sort of prayer beads and she's just standing in between the the crowd which was sort of half protesters half drunk Halloween partiers, probably more of the drunk Halloween partiers and so she's standing in between them um, and just holding a cross up at the riot police who are stood in formation across from her it's it's yeah there's quite a few photos uh of that scene but he shot it from like her point of view and it's incredibly powerful and and you know what, what blows my mind about his shots is his composition is amazing and a lot of his shots are in the middle of clouds of tear gas so i'm just thinking man joe you're you're out here he's a really nice guy i've, I've met him a bunch of times and been to his shop quite a few times I'm like, man, you're you're out there getting tear gassed and pumping out these unbelievable images. It's it's really incredible stuff. Yeah, there's a, I mean, just just what you're saying there is is just so so true. But I mean, there's another shot here that I'm looking at, and there's, um, I don't know if it was once a burning barricade or something like that, and there's there's. I guess one of the protest protesters, but he's not obviously not a policeman, uh, running running along with a uh, with a with what looks like a fire extinguisher, and he's silhouetted uh, perfectly with uh, with this 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 fire, um, mm -hmm. and he's he's running along quickly. You know, there's, just, there's just so much action and urgency in in the shot, and it, it's just like you're saying that comp compositionally, you know, he's in the middle of you know a riot. And in, in fact, so many times, you know, and and he's just absolutely getting these shots exactly as you would you would ever hope to be able to do, and he's just doing it time and time again. Yeah, yeah. Well, Perry, you're capturing the first draft of history, and you're doing things there that um, you know ninety five percent of photographers out there probably would never take the risk so i gotta tell you my hat is off to you and i respect the hell out of you for what you're doing but you know oh, like thank you. in all of our private messages i know i probably sound like this total mother hen you know be careful be careful my <laughs> god you know i'm almost like tempted to to um establish a fund or something for you in case you do get detained so that we've got bail money we can get to you quickly or something <laughs> <laughs> get you out quickly yeah, I mean it's it's a double-edged sword because you know you would obviously prefer none of this craziness to happen, um, but at the same time, it's it's weird because, like I mentioned, part of it feels like a 
almost a sense of desperation of like this is the only thing I can really do other than you know like, right. complain. But the other part of it is, I got to admit, it's an incredible photographic opportunity, and there is a part of me that when I'm out shooting, I it's not that I don't care about my own safety because I I'm really good at running away before they start tear gassing us. <laughs> um, I haven't been tear gassed yet, but when I'm actually shooting it, it, it is a normal exercise. I shoot it the way I would normally shoot street. You know, I think about composition. I think about timing. I think about the emotion and story I try to convey. And the other day when I had a 28 millimeter wide angle on my Canon 5L2, I would, I found it exhilarating getting like right up in the cops faces to the point where one of them, you know, she tapped me with her baton, which that was the moment where I was like, okay, okay, maybe it's a little too close. Uh, but you yeah, think? I, I, oh my god, a little, little bit. But it was, it was. Um, I was in the moment shooting, you know, and it's, it's, it's weird. Yeah. But it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of exhilarating. Yeah. <laughs> I I know what you mean. I have the. I don't know if I've shared that photo I have of the time I almost got my ass kicked in Chicago by the cops, but um, during the Gulf War protests. But yeah, it it is definitely exhilarating when you get you get in that moment and in that place where um, you know you're in the middle of what's going on but it's like you really have to remember to pull yourself back from that uh-huh. <laughs> from that moment <laughs> yeah so Johnny yeah. tell me about that photo and, and what was happening I, I I drove through the middle of two protests during the Gulf War right after the, the bombing campaign started yeah. I was in a 1956 Ford Victoria which was my first car and the pro-war protesters were throwing bottles at the anti-war protesters who were chucking bottles back and they were like sailing over my car and I just remember <laughs> thinking oh my god it's so where is this Portland or something I was Eugene yeah yeah okay yeah they don't let the shit like that happen in Chicago <laughs> That's a, that's a purely a West Coast thing where they let people throw things. That does not happen in Chicago. They will be on you in a second, and they will beat you down, and they will arrest you. So there's nothing gets thrown. Um, wow. Yeah, but the reason nothing gets thrown is because they, you know they will beat you down. So people don't do that stuff in, in Chicago. They will just be on you, and they would arrest you. Um, but yeah, I, it was the... the, the I, I feel like it's a kind of the missing history of the Gulf War um, that it was this big popular thing and uh, everybody was in favor of it. But in a lot of cities across the country, Chicago being one of them, there were thousands and thousands of people um, on the street uh, protesting and shutting the streets down. So I um, I was going to school downtown uh, when this happened and it was so it was literally happening like around my school where I go to school so I you know I was um, I was I was shooting on those there was like a couple of nights of when the protests were, were, were really big and going so I, I always tried to stay oh, not I tried to stay away from the protest group so as not to be kind of confused with as a protester because um, I was doing it more as a you know, trying to just kind of record the whole thing as a documentarian. Um, so I was I was out in front of this protest group as they were coming, turning down to come down Lakeshore Drive, which is like the main highway that runs along the lake here in Chicago. 
And there was a, a huge police barricade with, you know, paddy wagons and horses and all this stuff. And, um, and so I was crouched down shooting. I was probably two, 300 yards ahead of the protest itself. Um, and the cops were like, yeah, man, this is going to be like 68. Let's do it. And they had their batons out and they were just ready to, you know, to, to split heads basically. Um, and so I'm taking pictures of him in this, 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 this one cop finally noticed me and he, he started coming over towards me, um, with baton in hand. And then somebody, another cop kind of pulled him, called him back and told him not to do it, I guess, or whatever. Um, so I turned and I got out of there really quick, but I did get, I did get that photo. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it was, uh, it was one of those times where you, you, you realize you have to be you have to have a really um, clear head uh, uh-huh. doing doing protest photography and I, I've been in other I've been in other protests like that in Chicago where you really have to keep an eye on um, uh, like exit routes and where you're gonna go if something happens in which direction yeah. you can go it's like you always part of your brain has to always be attuned to uh, how you can get out of this situation, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah. So as long as you can do that, I mean, you, you know, um, it's just avoiding getting caught in the middle of something if possible. I mean, Johnny, I mean what you know, you shooting with? Oh, I, I'm sorry. Perry. Oh, no, go ahead. Uh, can't what camera wise. Yeah. Or, uh, that would have been my Minolta X 700. I mean, that was the only camera I had when I was in college. So, um, it would would have been a Minolta X seven hundred and probably a fifty millimeter lens. Awesome. You get, you, you get caught in the moment. Those cameras. What's that? I'm sorry. Oh, oh I, I, I was gonna. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, John. <laughs> sorry, Perry. No, no, you go ahead. No, I was just gonna say you you get caught in the moment. You know, like yeah, you're absolutely right. You, I'm I was hyper aware of which routes the riot police had blocked off and which routes were fairly safe for me to leave. Right. But at that right. at that specific moment when that cop basically they were just patrolling up and down this street. Not a lot was happening. Um it just looked kind of menacing. Um and and at that moment when she tapped me with her baton, basically she was just telling me to get out of their way. And yeah. When I pressed the shutter, my immediate thought when that happened was not Oh man, I'm gonna get beat. It was, oh, I hope I pressed the shutter early enough. <laughs> Which, it turns out I didn't. Um, but then, at the same time, you know, you're right that that on the one hand you have to balance not getting beaten up by the cops, but on the other hand, right. so when you're actually shooting, like you want to get this shot, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's when, that... she, when she waved the baton at me, my thought was, yes, this is this is the kind of image that I've been like waiting for this entire time. And then it's all blurry and stuff, but whatever. Right. right. You know, though, that makes it more powerful in, in some respects, you know, because the, the technical aspects of any particular photograph, those are the things that photographers look at, but Hmm. your average person isn't looking, you know, at, at that at all. They're looking at the emotional impact that the, the photograph gives them that visceral reaction and yeah so yeah when i saw that photo i just went holy crap and by the way my son saw it 
He's like, Dad, I want to go to Hong Kong and film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if he like decides to go to the photojournalist route, honestly, if he decides he wants to go photograph a war, I'm going to shoot him in the foot. <laughs> no, no. But um, anyway, yeah, um, guys, I think we we need to start to pull pull this. Um, Oh, we're coming to the end of our, our time it's already tomorrow in Hong Kong as well um, it is yeah um, John it's been uh, well it's been an honour to, to, to listen to you I mean the the oh, stories God, that you've you've come through there well, the experience that you've shared with us has been absolutely fantastic and I, I hope our listeners feel the, the, the same way thank you very much it's been a real pleasure and an honour to, to be with you guys like um yeah this podcast means a lot to me i i found it and i realized that, that there was a tribe you know i'm the only guy that shoots classic lenses aside from uh one of the other um uh employees over at our local uh shop so it really felt like i i found a home here so being on the show really sort of um underscores that so thank you very much i really appreciate it well, it's been a, an absolute pleasure. Yeah, um, so uh, I just just want to just um, say thank you to uh, the people have, have uh, donated to us this week um, uh, very very quickly, and uh, two which um, or without messages, and that's where uh, one from uh, Dan Dodd, thank you very much, and uh, one from uh, a regular donation from Lawrence Dunn, thank you very much, Lawrence. And we also have a message from our guest from two weeks ago, from Bill Pavetta, um, and uh, another great podcast there. Um, thanks for having me as a guest on episode 90. Uh, it was such a thrill to hear my name mentioned along the likes of Simon, Johnny and Perry. <laughs> uh, I wish I wish I could buy you guys your own coffee shop. So uh, thank, thank you very much, Bill. Uh, really, really appreciate it there. Um, and uh, if anybody wants to donate to us, uh, then you're more than welcome to do so on uh, coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com. And just do a search for Classic Lenses Podcast and you'll find our page. So uh, um, thank you all there. Um, uh, Perry, have you got any shout outs this week? Have I got any shout outs this week? I don't think so. That's okay. And John, are you going to shout out this week? <laughs> I got. I have a couple real quick. Um, I I was meaning to to mention this last episode, uh, but I got uh, so um, Andre Dominguez has been sending out uh, prints to folks just as a you know way to say hello and share the love. Uh, so I wanted to thank Andre for the cool print that he sent me. He sent me a photo of uh, when he was visiting. Um, Chicago is a picture of you know the front of uh, Central Camera, so uh, super nice print. Thank you very much, Andre. That, that is much appreciated. Um, and I want to say a quick shout out to uh, Jeremy Zorns, who I met uh, on Saturday, who was doing his uh, photo walk, which mm. I think had a relatively a relatively small turnout. It was kind of cold and nasty out, but they had a good time. So. Um, Jeremy was was there at uh, Central Camera. I got to chat with him for a few minutes, and cool to meet you. 
Okay, and uh, I've got uh, two shout-outs. I've got my usual shout-out uh, for the Six Towns Darkroom in Stoke-on-Trent, uh, which is on every Tuesday night. So if you fancy developing film and having a go at printing or just, just talking about old lenses and cameras and things, then you know, you're more than welcome to come down. So we're just get in touch with me via the many ways you can get in touch with me on social media, which we'll go through later. And I just want to say thank you again to Jeremy North because I've still got his... Uh, in fact, I've actually got two uh, Contax G2 cameras uh, in black uh, in a in a proper Contax case that uh, and I need to finish that roll of film. So, um, yeah, it's been absolutely great. Um shooting with that uh, camera Jeremy so uh, thank you for lending that to me um, okay uh, back to John um, you apart from you've got a, a book coming out uh, in January how can people um, see where your work is the best places to buy it or re read about what you do and things like that uh, com is my official website it'll take you straight to the indestructible page um, indestructible is one of the books that I wrote um, if you search my name John R Bruning on Amazon my books come up and the ones that I collaborated on also come up uh, the one that's coming out in January should be at Costco's and Barnes and Nobles and books a million I'm, I'm hoping that it'll be in the UK I know indestructible was either way I'll send you a copy son so uh, yeah you know the there's definitely a crossover or a, a, an intersection between um, the classic lens audience and World War II history that was one of the things that really uh, surprised me uh, running into some of the some of my readers on the page in, including uh, Jose um, and uh, also it's surprising to find in a non-aviation area people who know what B-29s are and, and, and Aero Ektar. <laughs> yeah, um, it's pretty wonderful. Anyway, just wanted to say that. I've got my, my Aero Ektar just, just, just beside me, beside me at the moment waiting for something big enough to use it with. <laughs> <laughs> right on. By the way, I am on Instagram as John R. Bruning, um, and Sylvie is on Instagram as well, the cat and she's Sylvie the canine cat so if you have any interest in seeing more of those photos uh, they're there on Instagram yeah I, I saw uh, yeah, Syl Sylvie followed me on in Instagram uh, which is very, <laughs> very, very, very nice of her um, she um, is a fan yeah <laughs> and uh, I um, yeah I, I, I saw I saw a few pictures and I'm thinking I know that cat I know that cat <laughs> 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 So uh, yeah, do follow Sylvie the Canine Cat. That's with uh, underscores on, in, in between. So Sylvie underscore the underscore Canine Cat. Um, right. So um, Perry, uh, how can people follow you outside of this podcast? Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Flickr at Perry G. Or if you want to visit my non-updated website, it's PerryG.com. And Johnny. Uh, you can follow me at uh, System Photography uh, on Instagram and what else you can find me at Central Camera Company also um, here in Chicago except on a Monday except on a Monday yeah I won't be I won't be there on Monday I'll be here sitting at a microphone doing this on a Monday so I won't be there 
And if people want to get in touch with us, what's the best way? Uh, send us an email at classiclensespodcast at gmail.com, of course. And, of course, uh, make sure that you uh, follow us along. Um, well, yeah. I mean, you're not going to follow us on Instagram, but you're going to follow us along um, on our website, which is classiclensespodcast.com. So do that there. And then follow along. Uh, who you should follow along on Instagram is uh, Best Vintage Lens. So check out Best Vintage Lens on Instagram. Um, I think they're still on hiatus from writing any show reviews because we don't talk about digital enough. But maybe they will do that. So you could follow that there. Let's 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 hope. Yeah. Um, and if anybody wants to listen to the show, but they can't, but they they want to have words to go along with. Uh, oh right. Yes. Yeah, you can, I think, stare at a blank YouTube video page and you can see the words right. on for the podcast. Yeah, so you, you could do that at uh, uh, Classic Lenses Podcast over on YouTube. So check that excitement out. Exactly. And yeah. uh, so we're, we're all in the Facebook group, uh, the Classic Lenses Podcast, uh, and we also out a little bit as well in the photography and classic lenses but things to do with our podcast is in that podcast group so that's that's our uh, main one for anything podcast related there um, and uh, yeah I do my own links I'm on Twitter as Simon4 I'm on Instagram as Simon4Photographic and seeing that uh, Johnny and Perry um, like to keep their uh, their feeds nice and clean of uh, podcast related information I put I, I don't I put podcast stuff on there so uh, that might be a way of uh, talking about the podcast as well uh, on, on my feed um what else? I've got an eBay shop, and if you go to the links, uh, you will you will see a link to my eBay shop and those wonderful lenses that I'm selling. Uh, the best place to see those links is either in the actually no, it's, I don't think we put the links up in the podcast group, do we? On Facebook because it's, it breaks the links, doesn't it? There's problems with that. Yeah, so, that's right. So the best yeah. best place to see well the show notes and all of the links that we put for every show, and that's our website, which is uh, classiclensespodcast.com. So www www.classiclensespodcast.com um, I'm sure there's something else I forgot um, I know that I need to say thank you to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for our music and ah, that's it, you can hear me uh, twice a week as well as well as on this podcast uh, because I do the large format photography podcast with Andrew Bartram and uh, we've, we've had a few cracking episodes there some of which might even be interesting to people that aren't interested in large format photography because it's uh, more of a general photography based discussion um, so uh, um, I urge you to have a listen to that um, so that's it so uh, just a final thanks to John John you've been great thanks for being with us thank you very much guys it's been a pleasure chatting with you that's it. And uh, so that's it from us I hope you've enjoyed this week's show and if you can be like Carl <laughs>